Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. What defines a good bourbon is relatively subjective. I first saw my next guest on Neat, the story of bourbon. And if you haven't seen it, I suggest you go find it and get yourself educated. My guest this episode is Marianne Eves. Marianne, why don't you tell us about yourself? Thank you so much, Michael. I'm really excited to be uh, on your podcast, Adding Context. Um, I have been in the industry of making booze for about 10 years, but I had no idea that this is what I wanted to do when I grew up. Um, I grew up in a dry county in Kentucky in Oldham County. I was actually born in Tennessee. So I, I didn't grow up around the bourbon culture that everybody associates with Kentucky. Um, I, I really just loved math and science. I was a huge nerd in school and wound up um, going to chemical engineering at the university, or pursuing chemical engineering rather, at the uh, University of Louisville. So through that, I had the opportunity to interview with a bunch of different places to try and find an internship, they call it an educational co-op. And I interviewed with everybody who was even remotely interested, anywhere from um, roofing adhesives to uh, extracting proteins from soy to <laughs> renewable energy research and, and finally uh, bourbon. And it really came down to a decision for me between renewable energy research and and um, working for Brown Foreman and making booze. And as a Kentuckian, I didn't know much about the spirit industry, but I knew of Brown Foreman. And my mom reassured me, if nothing else, it would be a good thing to put on your resume. So, um, and then also, you know, as a, a non-traditional college student, I had taken a little bit of time off after. Um, after high school, kind of get my bearings, figure out what I really wanted to be when I grew up. And I had taken an auto shop in, um, in high school. And I thought, you know, renewable energy, biodiesel, fuel additives, something like that. So I really thought renewable energy is where I would end up. Um, just uh, <laughs> found renewable energy in a, in a different kind of resource. <laughs> well, they're both admirable courses to go with. I mean, everybody wants is driving towards that renewable resource thing now. And, you know, I guess one of the most renewable resources is uh, bourbon or at least right. booze. So. <laughs> what, uh, what got you to go to bourbon as opposed to the renewable way? You know, I, I was thinking about all the different things that I could make with corn and why in the world would you make fuel when you could make bourbon? I was at a 21 year old um, college student uh, since I waited a little bit longer to actually get into school I was drinking age, and, and this was the internship that everybody wanted, so I figured, you know, maybe that's the one that I should take, so that when they offered me the position, um, I could just, you know, stay in Louisville where I already was and, and learn to make booze, which should be pretty marketable, at least um, as a sideshow side skill, so. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, what was it like working for Brown Informer? Like, what, what did the internship consist of? It was amazing. I wasn't sure what to expect because I really didn't understand all the technicality of, of making spirits. I, I was aware of like the process of moonshining. So I figured, you know, you just slap a, a beer keg in the woods somewhere and light a fire under it and, and you can make 
booze, but it's so much more than that. Every major unit operation that I was learning in my chemical engineering degree was being applied in this internship, filtration, distillation, um, heat exchange, all, all of these different things. Um, and, and it just fascinated me, um, the whole process. And then, of course, you know, the, the company, Brown Foreman, is an incredible company. When people start working for Brown Foreman, they stay their entire career. They have very low turnover because of how well they treat their employees and all of the benefits. And it, it, it really was an amazing opportunity. I feel like I got 15 years worth of experience in the first that I worked in the industry. Um, I was not just working in Kentucky on bourbon. They were sending me all over the world. I I went to Belgium and Mexico and and, um, all these different places learning to make global spirits because they are a globally um, present um, uh, corporation. What was it about, you you left the internship and went, right to Castle and Key, or was there something in between there? So I, I had the internship at Brown Foreman. They hired me full-time. So all in all, I worked for Brown Foreman for six years and worked my way up the ranks from uh, an intern to a process engineer to a training master taster to getting the title of master taster and then working as protege to the master distiller of Woodford Reserve. And then from there, um, while I was working for Chris Morris, that's when the two men that um, bought the former old Taylor distillery approached me uh, really just with an introduction and, and a, an offer to give me a tour. And, and from there it evolved into a job offer, which I wasn't so sold on immediately. You know, it's an incredible historic place, but if you had seen it, it was just going to be, a tremendous amount of work. We call it a, a Herculean <laughs> effort to get that place, um, even even to the point of being able to fix it. <laughs> so um, it, it was straight from Brown Foreman as their master taster and protege to Chris Morris over to Castle and Key, where I took the title of master distiller. Well, congratulations on that title, if I recall correctly. Thank it's the, you. Uh, you're the first female to be given that title since Prohibition. That's correct. It's just wild to think uh, <laughs> it hadn't come sooner. <laughs> yeah, I mean, granted, Prohibition, I think, was a, a flawed ideology, but, you know, it's in the past, and we're fortunately moving past that. Um, talking about Castle and Key, uh, there, there are some shots in Neat, and I believe it's probably around the time that you guys had initially moved in and started taking over the, the site and, and rehabbing it. And you can see that there's age to it, but the little clips towards the end of the uh, documentary, you can see the more updated version of the spaces and things like that. How much of a hand did you have in in the renovation of that? Oh, I was there, you know, uh, when all the windows were broken and the roof was collapsing. So I had a a lot of um, input and... um, (laughs) <laughs> involvement in in uh, in bringing resurrecting the place we'll say you know every building you know it was kind of waist high with the trash and lead and asbestos and um it was a kind of an environmental nightmare but we we were able to put it back together and and especially the distillery that's that's where um you'll see the 
majority of, of my influence, um, getting that put back together, incorporating some of the post-prohibition equipment in with our modern processes and, and building essentially <laughs> two <laughs> distilleries in the same building while operating one. <laughs> it was it was an incredible um, revelation, really, when I had designed a distillery that from our projections was supposed to last us at least five years of production growth. And then three months into turning the stills on, we realized we just couldn't meet the demand. We had decided to, to start contract distilling for some select folks and realized the opportunity out there. And so I was like, okay, we need at least a little more fermentation space. So we started working on three more 11,000-gallon fermenters. And then another three months goes by, and we're only you know less than a year into production. I'm like, all right, um, so this still isn't enough. We're going to need uh, another cooker, another chiller, another cooling tower, another still, uh, six more fermenters. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't sound like um, a bad problem to have. No, not a bad problem at all. Man, it was a, a ton of work, though. It just, you know, a, a wild ride, an incredible opportunity. So you guys also, aside from bourbon, but you guys make gin and vodka. I'm, I'm guessing there's a vast difference in the process and, and the materials needed for that? Well, yes and no. It just depends on the individual's approach. So when I was at, at Castle and Key, my approach was anything that went into a bottle with my name on it, I wanted to actually have produced it. So my approach was we're going to take the distillate that I'm already producing for this amazing rye and bourbon that, that I've developed and use those base spirits to um, turn into vodka and gin. So the bourbon recipe, I distilled that through a vodka column, taking it up to 190 proof and really cleaning it up, um, but not to the point where it wasn't um, recognizable. So you can still taste a little bit of the grain, some of that sweetness and the creamy mouthfeel in the vodka that, that I made while I was at Castle and Key. And then I decided that rye whiskey, new, new distillate, once we, we distilled that and turned it into vodka, I was like, man, this would be really cool as a base for a gin. And then kind of worked um, with that in mind when developing the botanical blend that would then be infused in, into that base spirit. So every piece was made um, from scratch. Um, I developed them that way for Castle and Key. Uh, it, we were hoping, you know, while I was still there, that eventually the all of the botanicals that I had chosen to be in their core gin recipe would be grown on site in one of the ruins of um, a warehouse that had been there. There were, you know, perfect rows that, that we had turned into planting beds um, the first year that herbs were planted, unfortunately, <laughs> I wasn't ready to make gin in time um, to harvest anything to, to use. Uh, so I, I don't know. They, they ended up hiring a horticulturalist, um, and, and hopefully she's got everything up and going, and they're making, you know, totally fresh uh, botanical gin. But the the recipe at least is is um, made so that they can do that when, when the ground and is ready and all the plants are mature enough. Sounds like you got a, a lasting legacy there. What, uh, if I may ask, what's the difference between a dry 
a London dry and a dry uh, gin? Is it the sugar content? Well, actually, I I don't think in um, a standard gin that you're really uh, allowed to add sugar, at least not in the U.S. regulation. It may be in the EU regulation that you can add some flavorings, um, like some, some sugar flavorings. There are different styles of gin, too. One is distilled gin in which, you know, um, the all the botanicals are infused through hot the hot distillation process. And then there's what's called a compound gin, which is essentially just a mixing vat. You have your base neutral spirit vodka, essentially, and then you're throwing in flavorings and essential oils so that it, it um, still tastes like gin. You're just not actually going to the extent of, of distilling it. So it's, it. it's possible that with that compound process, you could add some um, sugar flavors too. So to kind of jump back into the, the, the bourbon route of things, from what I, the little bit that I know about bourbon making, corn is you know the, the premier key component. What difference does it have, you know, if using dank corn or sweet corn or how, how much of an impact does that change the flavor profile of the, of the bourbon you start with? The ingredients that you choose to go into it and the ratio that, that you um, select has a tremendous impact on the, the flavor outcome. Um, I, I saw, you know, even a percent difference with 72% corn to 73% corn, even if you're just using yellow corn has a, a significant difference um, in flavor. Um, but there are so many variables. It's, it's um, a little hard to pinpoint exactly what changes the flavor, but definitely the variety of corn. I mean, sweet corn versus white corn versus yellow corn versus uh, a lot of folks are using red um, bloody butcher corn. I know several distilleries that are using that variety. Um, lots of distilleries, new craft distilleries are, are growing their own heirloom varieties of corn and the flavor of the corn because it, it, it you know, by law, it's the predominant ingredient has a, a tremendous impact on, on the overall um, flavor profile. So you mentioned something in, in that little bit of the answer. Do you see craft bourbon becoming a thing, similar to the way that, <laughs> that uh, craft brewery and things are? You know, I, I really believe, you know, that the craft distilling industry is developing and maturing, and it deserves more recognition than, than it's gotten thus far. I think in the beginning when the craft movement, maybe about 10 years ago, was really getting started in the United States, it was a lot of folks that, you know, thought it would be fun to start a distillery with very little experience. So there was some questionable quality being produced. But nowadays, you know, they've they've had um, some years <laughs> to work out the kinks. And I think there's some really excellent um, products being put into the market. It's just a little bit difficult to get your hands on them because I think a, a lot of craft distilleries are just locally distributed. So um, if you've got a, a distillery in Iowa, you might be in Iowa and one other state. So, so it, it's not like um, Kentucky bourbon, which finds which typically would find it easier to get um, a larger distribution or a wider distribution just because of having Kentucky on the label. When you have to sell somebody your, your um, Florida or Texas bourbon, um, you know, they have no experience telling them what that product should taste like and, and um, 
there's no track record. So it's harder to, to get distributors on board with you. So I think um, there, there are lots of incredible products. Hopefully the um, craft industry continues to hold itself accountable and, and continue to elevate in quality. Um, and, and it'll just, um, it'll just keep um, getting better and better. But I, yeah, I think the innovation that comes from craft will eventually find its way into the mainstream. Like um, I saw Jim Beam do some small grain innovation uh, five years ago. It was about five years ago that I don't think they ever would have tinkered around with had there not been, you know, these small scale distilleries trying weird things and like Corsair, for example, in, in uh, Tennessee, they also have a distillery in Kentucky, but they were doing a quinoa bourbon and, um, oh, what's that woman's name that was in, <laughs> oh, shoot, the Avengers, she's Tony Stark's assistant. Oh, uh, Pepper, Pepper Pox. Yes. Or, um, yes. Yeah, now I'm drawing a blank too. <laughs> Gwyneth, Gwyneth Paltrow. Paltrow. Thank you. Pepper did it for me. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow like tweets about this quinoa bourbon. And so, you know, people are starting to pay attention to, to you know, unique grain, grain bills. And, and I think, you know, it really does start with these small scale productions. They have a lot less to lose if they try something unique and it, and it doesn't exactly hit the mark. Um, if, if, um, uh, I'll say Brown Foreman because I worked there. If if Old Forester, you know, starts a, a quinoa bourbon, their production is just so huge that once once it hits the market, if if people don't like it, they have you know to stand they stand to lose a lot more, and their reputation is um is maybe even the the largest consideration that could be at stake. So it's 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 really cool. I think how these small scale, smaller scale production, um, their, their bravery and courage and innovation will, will impact the industry. I, I think definitely much in line with what's happening, what has happened in, in beer. I think one of the things that I picked up from meat is the region in which your ingredients are grown in to include the Oak <laughs> that the bourbons are, are made of can vastly impact the, the flavor profile as well. So I think that, you know, with the places that we have popping up in New Jersey, I think there's four or five distilleries in New Jersey that are producing bourbon. Um, one of which is about a 20 minute ride for me that once all this COVID thing kind of <laughs> goes away to a more significant point where we can actually in- interact as normal. Um, I need to take a ride up. I've heard that their bourbon's pretty spectacular from somebody who knows bourbon far better than I do. Um, and I, I take What's their, the name of that distillery. Uh, oh, um, <laughs> give me Sorry. one second. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna have that looked up real quick, and in the meantime, I will pester you with some other questions. <laughs> okay. Um, with that, the thing about uh, flavoring and profiles and and the percentages, what specifically do you look for in a bourbon and now obviously i understand it's a little bit of a loaded question because you've had a unique opportunity to truly create your bourbon um but what what kind of things do you look for in the flavor what are you looking for when you were creating your your bourbon well it's interesting you know i i developed um several recipes when i was working at castle and key 
Um, the goal there was to really honor this historic product that Colonel E.H. Taylor produced while he was at that distillery, because that was, you know, the the crown jewel of, of his accomplishments. He built us a freaking castle to <laughs> to make a statement about the quality of his product. Um, but, you know, I, I tasted some of what he made from back in 1917 and was really inspired by the, the, the complexity, the balance, even for a product that was made pre-prohibition when, you know, the, the science and technology was much different. Um, so making four different bourbon recipes to then blend together to create this kind of historic profile while, um, also, um, tasting something from 1908. My own legacy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. Uh, yeah, so you said you tasted okay. something from 1908. That's was it bottled or was it still kind of in the cask? Because I can imagine that that's <laughs> completely. <laughs> I yeah, I don't I don't think anything that was barreled in in uh, in the early 1900s would would have still been. Uh, uh, I don't know that there would have been any contents in, in that barrel <laughs> just because of the nature of the, the environment in Kentucky. It, it really bakes things. So it was it was in a bottle. Um, one of the founding partners there, Wes Murray, uh, found a few bottles of this really old, old tailor. It was uh, in the back of some dusty old liquor cabinet at a, at a horse farm in the area. And so... When I joined the team, it was the first old tailor that we tasted together. And I was like, gosh, we should try and make something like this. <laughs> so I think I still have yet to make like the perfect bourbon that, that you know, if, if I were unrestrained, un, un, yeah, I think unrestrained by um, a certain marketing story or a particular historic angle and, and can just know produce what i think would be the, the best and and what i typically look for is balance and a, and a great mouthfeel got it um by the way that i believe it's sourland mountain distillery oh, in cool. hopewell new jersey which i'll send you that information later if you want to check it out if you ever come east coast i do <laughs> thank you um so you've mentioned numerous times that you've kind of in, in past tense to castle and key what have you been doing since you left castle and key I guess the bigger question is you, you left before the bourbon's been released. So have you had a chance to at least taste that yet? <laughs> well, I, I tasted a bunch of aging stuff right before <laughs> I left because they, they had um, started this single barrel program and it sold out every year um well the first two years that that they uh, uh, sold it. So essentially I was writing aging notes. I don't know if any of the customers actually got those notes. I don't know if they were distributed um, after I left or not, but that doesn't really matter. Um, but I tasted a lot of the aging stuff and was really, really, really excited by, by what I was tasting. But, you know, I, I mentioned the, the way I architected the recipes. Now it's kind of up to them um, and the team that remains to figure out <laughs> how they want to do it. You know, I, I had a vision for the way that I um, developed the recipes and, and designed the, the product profile in my mind. Um, but now, you know, they, they have a, a world of opportunities in these different recipes 
recipes in the different warehouses and, and they'll have to figure out how to blend it together and when the time is right. So it's, it's all up to them now. Got it. Do you think it was left in good hands though? I believe that, that they have all of the tools that they need to put out something really great. Um, will it be the vision that, that I had for the product? Probably not, um, but that's okay. It's, it's, it's their stuff now and, and they are talented and um, the brand ambassador, Brett Connors there in particular, we have very similar um, palette preferences. So I imagine he'll, he'll blend together something that's really delightful if, if they leave it up to him. Got it. So what are you doing with your time now that you're not at Castle and Key full time? Or at all. <laughs> <laughs> at all yeah. <laughs> so I, um, when I, when I decided to make the move away from Castle and Key, I knew that I wanted to start my own business and be an industry consultant. I had already made a relationship with a woman named Lindsay Hoops, um, the proprietor of Hoops Vineyard in Oakville, California. So really for the first six months, it was a conversation with her and making plans to turn this um, smoked Cabernet wine that had been tainted by the 2017 fires into a really beautiful smoky brandy project or product. So we've been batting that back and forth and continuing to develop those products for her. But since then, I've gotten involved in, in several other really exciting um, products in the whiskey space, also working on um, getting into developing some rum and other gin profiles. So not not a not just you know working in whiskey, but looking at some other spirit categories to be inspired by those processes and and hopefully come back and and make um, even more interesting strides and in innovation in in bourbon. It's kind of circling back to your worldly exposure of uh, the various spirits throughout the world. <laughs> exactly. Yes. You, um, I see you. you worked with Peyton Manning and Sweetens Cove. Yes. It was it's it's interesting, you know, they, these um two guys approached me um because they were recommended to me by the production facility in Columbia, Tennessee where they were housing these 113 year old Tennessee produced bourbon barrels that they had purchased. So they were talking to the folks at the facility and they're like, you know, we we have this awesome product um, we really want to make sure that it goes together in a, in a way that honors the flavor profile and, and maybe elevates it, if that's even possible. And they were like, you know what? If you want a really great product, it's going to be an investment, but you should reach out to Marianne. And so without really knowing who I was, I mean, they, they started to do some research after they got my name recommended to them. But they, you know, they reached out and they wanted to learn about what I was going to do with it. And and so I I jumped on board because you know I kind of missed tasting older products like that so I was like you know if nothing else uh I'll, I'll get a good palate workout out of it <laughs> <laughs> but you know also having the opportunity to to get on board with some like-minded uh folks you know they 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 bought this kind of run down forgotten about golf course really a, a, a hidden gem that they purchased not to make money, but just to preserve because they felt like it was important. And then from there, you know, looking at other opportunities to expand that brand name and, and maybe make a little bit of money. Um, they, uh, they continued this first shot before your first shot tradition, which <laughs> essentially folks 
were coming to the course with a bottle of bourbon, they would leave it at the first tee and, you know, you, you would take a shot and then, and then go on your way and, and play around. It's only a nine hole course. So I guess you could take two shots through. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, they, they, they were thinking we, we have this bourbon tradition already infused in the experience of Sweetens Cove. Why, why, why couldn't we make a brand? And that's when, uh, when I was brought on board, you know, they, they, weren't trying to produce some kind of mass market mixed with Coke shooter type Tennessee product. They really were focused on um, continuing to uphold this quality uh, reputation that they had with the golf course with a little bit of mystery and that sense of discovery. They also used the tagline, if you know, you know, so they're not doing a ton of marketing. It's really word of mouth for people that have fallen in love uh, once they discovered the golf course and, and the feeling and um, approach that they wanted to take with the bourbon as well. And I, I definitely found that very romantic and appealing. So that's really what, what um, kind of sealed the deal for me. What myths, if any of you would like to dispel? I mean, for, for me growing up, bourbon was typically Jack Daniels and and the, the Tennessee <laughs> connection, so to speak, and knowing you know what the law is and what really defines a bourbon, what myths would do you mm. think need to be kind of shattered for the people that don't know better? <laughs> well, I think the first thing is that bourbon can only be made in Kentucky uh, or Tennessee. I think that the vast majority of um, of general kind of consumers don't understand that the, the variety and um, unique profiles that are being made in beautiful bourbon products across the, the United States. So bourbon is our American spirit and, and it's had that um, as part of its identity since 1964 when it was finally um, defined before that bourbon really could be, have been made anywhere. And it, and it was, they were making what they called bourbon and down in Mexico. And that, that really was because of prohibition. A lot of bourbon distilleries moved their production down to Mexico and then they were bootlegging it back up. But that's a, a longer history lesson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I often wonder how much good spirits were destroyed because of that. Mm-hmm. And, and knowing yeah. what I learned in, in need that, you know, the aging and the process and it, it would be really nice to, to know, be able to taste some of the things that were truly just run down the drain. Um, yeah. So I, I noticed that you're a newly minted mother or recently minted I mother. I am. I am. <laughs> How is mother's life yep. treating you? <laughs> she is just a, a angel. Um, she's five and a half months old. We are going through a little bit of sleep regression, but she's just so smart and engaged. And, and I, it's just been incredible to see her change daily, doing new things, making new noises. I, I, I knew that I, I, I've always known that I wanted to be a mom. I was waiting to find the right partner to do it with. Um, but I didn't know how much I would enjoy just, you know, the, the little things and, and her being so young, but, um, it, I, I had a, a girlfriend once we were younger. She, she was a, a much younger mother than, than I was, um, when, and I was at the hospital when she had her, her little girl, her first child, Riley, 
and when they brought Riley back to her um, after they had done, you know, the whatever first wash and, <laughs> and all the little pricks and things like that, they brought Riley and put her in, in Melissa's arms. And, and I would never, ever forget. She looked at that baby and she said, oh, I had no idea I was going to love you this much. And I carried that with me and, and I, I just, you know, I was really looking forward to that feeling and, and it's absolutely true. There's no way that you can possibly imagine even, even, um, even pets, you know, I, I, I was, I would get to the point of tears. I love my cat so much. And then Andy, Andy's come along and it, it's just such a, a life altering, soul changing, um, experience. I've, I've so enjoyed it. I've, uh, I've been in that similar position, at least from the father's side twice. And, and I can agree the, the wave of emotion that you expect is nothing compared to what it reality is. Yeah. Um, I noticed that we, we have a, a very close birthday. Did as growing up, did you get the, the similar treatment that I did as because of how <laughs> close it is to Christmas? It's a matter of, Oh, you get a small thing for your birthday, something bigger for Christmas or vice versa, or just get one gift for both. Constantly, constantly getting combined gifts. <laughs> Easy way out of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, a, I'm almost exactly a week before Christmas, so I feel like, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and here's your, here's your Christmas present too. I got you something, you know, extra special for both. Go, thanks. So, are you doing a lot of traveling with your little business now that you have going to hopefully blossom to something monstrous? <laughs> So not nearly as much traveling as we had intended. You know, when Given. when Andy was born on March 13th, um, right as the pandemic was was hitting, um, everything shut down. So we had been on the, the normal circus route. So my partner owns the circus, and I moved in with him and um, hopped on the tour September of last year. So we were just working our way down the country. We were in Miami. You know, there were people talking about the coronavirus, but um, I, I guess we just weren't really taking it seriously at that point. Maybe it, it hadn't really hit um, the U.S. at that point. But the plan was he was going to drop me off at my mom's place near Orlando, and then he was going to continue on the tour. And then he would come back for her birth, and we would stay together for a little while. And then when Andy and I were ready, we would join back up with the circus the circus train. <laughs> so essentially what happened was um, Andy came along. Um, Kevin left the next morning to go shut down the circus. Um, moved all of the the equipment into storage, and um, we've kind of just been halted ever since then. So it would have been much more travel, you know, essentially two weeks in a place and, and moving on. But we've been, I think, probably still traveling more than most. We've been in three different states since the pandemic started. So after a couple months with my mom in Florida with very new baby Andy. We moved up to Texas and stayed there for a couple months. And, and Kevin um, made this decision to start doing live stream digital circus performances. So that was really cool and very successful for the first couple. Mm -hmm. What's the name and of his uh, circus? Venardo's Circus. That's his last name. Got it. Uh-huh. You can go to liveyourcircusdream.com is the, is the website. Much easier than trying to sell the numbers. 
um, but so, yeah, so after Texas, um, we were like, gosh, it's really hot down here. There's so many bugs. Um, Texas is a little wild right now with their COVID numbers. <laughs> Let's move somewhere that feels a little safer. And, and Oregon, the Pacific Northwest, is kind of always called to Kevin. I was not going to fight him on it. There's a bunch of cool distilleries up this way. So we, we just, you know, packed up, um, stopped in to see his mom so Andy could meet her other grandmother on the way. And we've been up in Oregon for a couple months now, just enjoying the the summertime up here and getting out into some of the beautiful nature that they've got and, and continue on continuing on with the digital circus. <laughs> um, I, I can do what I do with the, the blending and consulting from essentially anywhere. It's a little more difficult with my California client, but now I'm eight hours away from her. So it's not, not that big of a deal when you travel like we do. (laughs) So I'm actually going down there to visit with her and do another round of um, brandy distillation. We're actually distilling almost 3000 gallons of um, rosé that had been impacted by the the wildfires into brandy, which distills down to a a couple hundred gallons. So (laughs) not, it's, it's a pretty amazing, I mean, it's just like distilling beer um, of any kind it's at the low alcohol content you're stripping out all the water essentially and hopefully leaving all the the beautiful flavor we did a, a several different products the last time I was in which was December of last year we distilled Cabernet Chardonnay and Rosé and it's just amazing how, how um, you know, if you're a wine drinker and you pick up this brandy, you'll be able to tell me what, what kind of um, grape, what, what the product was that went into it. It's, it. They come over that clearly, which was super exciting for me. How, um, how close or I guess what region of California is she in? Hopefully she's not being impacted by the current wildfires going on. Mm, yeah. I, I think everybody over there is, is being impacted. It's just going to be a thing that, that they're, they're learning to evolve with. Um, but it's not directly in, in her region just yet, but Still she's impacting. in Oakville. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know that New Jersey sent a number of firefighters, the forest firefighters to help yeah. with that, but that's just a, it's just mind boggling how, how large scale that those fires are. It's, um, yeah, it's really, so really sad. Oregon calls to me too. I just have not had a chance to get out that far west. I, I definitely want to get out there. But um, what kind of distilleries you said were out there? You said there's a handful that you're, are you just going to, to, to sample or are you offering your services to maybe help improve their products? <laughs> Well, I, so I, I need to get up to Portland. Um, I know a, a woman named Molly Troop who runs um, a distillery called Freeland Spirits. Um, I haven't actually tasted anything that she's made yet, but people always sing her praises. So I'm, I'm just dying to get up there. Um, there's a little distillery here in Bend, Oregon called Oregon Spirits Distillers. And I fell in love with them last year while I was here briefly um, for the circus tour. And their distiller, Brandy uh, Piper, is very talented, um, a, a visionary, and, and so proud of um, the products that they're making here in Oregon. I've, I've been a, a couple times just to sit down and have a, a cocktail. They have a, a really fabulous cocktail program. <laughs> <laughs> it's always nice. Pop in and, yes. and, and taste. <laughs> like I was saying before, you know, once the, the COVID thing lifts and we can socialize a little more um, there's four distilleries that are 
within short driving range for me. Um, although I heard, I think one of them might have closed because of they weren't able to keep up with everything, with the with COVID kind of yeah. damaging a lot of prop, uh, businesses and such. <clears throat> oh yeah, I'm, um, I'm sure that's happening happening in a lot of places. You know, it's it's um, fortunate I think for those who are able to shift production and start produce, producing hand sanitizer, some found that to be very lucrative and and help them stay afloat. You know, but there's also the the smaller distilleries that relied so much on having people to come in for that cocktail and and buy from from their gift shop that you know when when people stopped leaving the house they they lost all that those sales and that's very devastating it's hurt a lot of businesses bourbon aside do you have a a preferred spirit it's not bourbon (laughs) yeah it's it's interesting you know i i Probably before I started working for Castle and Key, if you had asked me, I would have said rum. It would have been bourbon, then rum. But since developing that gin recipe for Castle and Key, I would say gin. Um, it is so interesting and just incredible the variety of flavor profiles that you can infuse in, into the into a product. Um, I love tasting uh, really cool gin cocktails and, and uh, learning about the ingredients that that folks select and 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 it, it's fun to imagine um, different combinations. I think that there's still a huge opportunity in gin. It's all the these different herbs and spices to me it just seems so clear that there should be more connection to the culinary world and i feel like that in a, in a lot of spirit categories but gin in particular um the ratio of spices um the region you know the the, the origin you know a lot of gins will have i don't know 40 something spices coming from all over the world but then there's also you know, not not just the origin, not just the spice itself, but the treatment of the spice before it goes into the product, which is where that culinary aspect comes in. So I would have never thought, you know, to to toast a, a coriander seed before throwing it in the <laughs> still. Um, but you know, the, the, it's the application of heat and these different culinary uh, methods that absolutely amplify and change the flavor of these different ingredients. So I'm, I'm just really excited about what could be ahead and, and some potential co- collaborations in the gin space for me. I've, I've spent some time behind the bar as a bartender. And, and one of the things that I've tried to do, and I'm not quite sure I was very successful in it is, you know, create my own drinks with the different flavors. Um, the one thing I've noticed is I'm not as good on the palate as I would like to think I was. Um, I think people kind of <laughs> smiled and nodded and wanted to spit out what I made them sometimes. Oh. But, uh, <laughs> I was uh, I, I was a big rum. I liked rum. I won't say I was a big rum dripper. I'm not, you know, a, a big drinker per se, but I like to taste things. I like flavors and it's actually been probably the last 10, 15 years that I've kind of found bourbon and, and really enjoyed it. And now I try and taste the varying uh, brands as I can. You've, um, mm-hmm. you've even mentioned a number, number of times about you know, what seems like balance is, is key um, when it comes to distilling process. And um, I think so. Yeah. I, I feel like 
the experience the, that you have on your in in your mouth <laughs> on the palate um, is is more important than the individual flavors. So even if you can't identify the 200 something flavors in a glass of bourbon, what I want is for when you pick it up to be like, gosh, there's a lot here. You might not be able to tell me that there's spice notes and floral notes and fruit notes and sweet aromatics and oak character and grain character, but it's, it's all going to be present. And what you're not going to say is, gosh, this is hot or gosh, this is only, you know, one note. All I'm getting is, is, sweetness or all I'm getting is hot and spice. Um, I, I want it to, to always be balanced and um, to create this uh, interesting experience. There might be points while you're tasting that you're like, wow, that, that there's a lot of vanilla right there in the middle of the palate. But as you as you progress through the experience, it's going to, you know, finish with maybe, you know, some subtle fruit and a, a warm um toasted marshmallow or something like that, you know, really, um, giving you a, a lot to contemplate and, and, um, activating the, the whole tongue and the whole palate and, and lingering on so that you're, you're tasting it well after it's, um, it's, uh, it's been consumed. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a, I guess, how would you instruct somebody to really get the best tasting experience out of anything that they're, they're trying, any spirit they're trying. Cause it's, you're, you're kind of referring to lots of parts of the tongue and, and the palate. Mm-hmm. And, and I've always admired people that could take a sip of something and, Oh, I taste this. I taste this. I taste this. And part of me is going, there's no way you can taste all that. But, but clearly there's, there's people who have such a refined palate that they can really taste the, the individual components. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think the first step, if, if you want to be able to identify all of these different flavors, is that you actually have to have tasted them, so or or experienced them, shall I say? I, I remember watching this documentary. Um, I think it's called Psalm. It's about the training and, and um, studying that that folks go through before doing the testing to become a master sommelier. And one of the guys on the show kept using like the fresh, freshly popped can of tennis balls as one of his tasting notes or somebody would say like wilted violets or something like that. And, and you can't express what those flavor notes are unless you've actually experienced them. So when you have the chance to try and smell, taste um, different varieties of citrus, like tangerine versus a navel orange versus, you know, a, a grapefruit versus a lemon, you know, it's, 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 surprising to a lot of people, I think, how limited our um, recall is for these different flavors when we don't have the visual um, to stimulate uh, our, our memories. You know, if you think about the way a pear tastes versus an apple, um, it's, it's actually really hard to tell apart when you aren't looking at a pear and an apple. So if you're, you're picking up a, a glass of bourbon and you're like, gosh, there's some kind of um, palm fruit in here, but you're not going to be able to tell me exactly which one it is unless you've 
you know, been thoughtful about an experience with those flavors, or it, or it might be, you know, so strongly tied to a memory. Like this is just like grandma's apple pie. <laughs> <laughs> grandma's so apple pie I usually has a lot of flavors to it too. So <laughs> a lot of flavors, not just the apple, you got the spice and the dough and the, you know, the brown sugar and the caramelization and, and all of that wonderful stuff. That's, you know, apple pie is just, it's gotta be one of the best notes. Um, but I would say, you know, being thoughtful about tasting in, in all um, experiences that you have when you're eating a meal, um, when you're at the grocery store. I mean, don't be a weirdo and like rub your nose, especially not now during COVID time. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, you know, just, just um, having those thoughtful experiences. And, and when you're tasting other, other beverages, when you're tasting wine, when you're tasting beer, when you get those dominant notes that just, just kind of taking those and, and, and um, cataloging them so that you can recall them easier. Um, when you actually get to tasting a spirit, I always taste at room temperature when I'm first interacting with a, a, a spirit that I haven't tried before. I think you perceive the most at room temperature. Um, nobody wants to drink a hot spirit. I would never recommend that. Um, but if you chill it or add an ice cube, it actually dulls the sensory experience, you know, for, for just, um, drinking to enjoy it. If you're not really trying to dissect the flavors, absolutely add an ice cube. It's a fun thing to do. It smooths it out. And as the ice melts, it dilutes the the spirit and you're going to be tasting different things. Um, so I always go for whatever the, the proof is in the bottle or the barrel. You know, if, if I'm tasting a, a product straight out of the barrel, I want to know what it tastes like at cast strength. Um, so the first thing that you want to do is smell it just like you would do with, with any other spirit. You stick your, your nose in there, um, but you're not going to take a huge sniff. So I think that's a, that's a mistake some people make if they <laughs> yeah. breathe in too much. And what you're going to get is just overwhelmed with alcohol and you're not going to smell anything at all. You're just going to, it's just going to burn and then your nose is going to be burnt out and you're not going to taste or smell much after that. So short sniffs, I used to say bunny sniffs, if that gives you a little, a little better visual, it's little short sniffs. Um, you might swirl your glass and that allows some of that alcohol to, to float out before you stick your nose in there. Um, sometimes you'll walk into a tasting and they have a glass set on top of your tasting glass and that is to contain the aroma so that you don't get mixed up with what aromas are coming from which sample. Um, so you might just remove the, the wash top, nose the glass, and then put it right back on before you go through the, the rest of the samples. But always nose first. That gives you a little bit of an insight into, one, the proof, if you, if you don't know the proof, um, and then the kind of broad strokes of the, the notes that you might get. Very often the palate is quite different than what you know. So you may hate the nose or it might be, you know, really, um, uh, light or it might be way overwhelming. Um, but once you get to the palate, you, you'll, you'll experience something different. So I always recommend once you're ready to taste, still nose again first and then go in for the taste in the same, you know, you, you have the, the nose to your, the, the glass to your nose, and then you just go ahead and, and take a sip right there. Like you're not going to nose and then pull away and then come back right. and taste. 
Um, so a small sip first, especially if, if that's your first sip of the day, um, a very small sip, coat the palate, swish it around. Um, you're not really trying to pull out any flavors in that one. You're just letting your pet, your, your tongue, the roof of your mouth, the, the back of your throat, get accustomed to the feeling of the alcohol. And then you come back for a second sip. So again, nosing again, taking a second, slightly larger sip. And then that's where you start kind of, um, uh, I like the, the, the idea of kind of like swishing it around like mouthwash. Some folks call it the Kentucky chew. Um, I make an absolute mess if I try and open my mouth while I'm, while I'm, um, tasting. So I keep my mouth closed. Um, you'll see some, uh, more, uh, tenured Kentucky distillers opening their mouth and, and kind of smacking on it. Um, it, it's kind of just what you're comfortable with. Um, like I said, I, I get messy and, and end up choking on it if I try and open my mouth. So I'm, I'm a little bit more delicate, um, swishing it lightly like mouthwash, coating the, the entire palate, um, holding it in there for just a couple seconds before I swallow, um, and then continuing to chew even after I've swallowed. That's when I can open my mouth and start to let a little air in because that, that experience will, will change. Um, and then, you know, giving yourself a little bit of time to feel the, the, um, after, aftertaste, the finish is what it's called, not aftertaste. (laughs) Aftertaste has a bad connotation. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So you've, you've won, um, a number of accolades. You were named one of wine enthusiasts, top 40 under 40 tastemakers. You were on the Forbes list for the next generation in the bourbon industry. You were in food and drinks, 30 under 30 list. And of course, most recently, you are now on the cover of American Whiskey. Um, one thing that I noticed in the documentary Neat was it looked like at one point there was a lot of big names in the bourbon industry all gathered in one room. What was it like to kind of sit in and literally share a glass with some of the older people that have kind of seen the, the change in the industry over the last you know, 20, 30 years? is really amazing i you know i when i worked for brown foreman i felt like i really only knew the brown foreman portfolio and um their history and and i had a very narrow viewpoint of the industry and very narrow exposure to um all the different styles and producers of, of bourbon. When I moved from Brown Foreman to Kathleen Key, it was really a, a sense of, I don't want to say freedom because I loved working for Brown Foreman, but I really felt like um, I had a, a, a new perspective on um, being able to make relationships with these other distilleries and tasting their products with, without, you know, quite (laughs) being quite so critical. (laughs) (laughs) I was developing my own recipe and I was just really trying to learn versus having a brand to sell and, and doing the comparison thing. So, you know, and, and a lot of folks were really interested in, in my plans for rebuilding the old uh old taylor distillery because it was so important to the history of the industry um the history of the you know the the development of um, bourbon tourism the bottle and bond act colonel taylor had touched a lot of 
very important aspects of um, where Kentucky bourbon is today. So a lot of those folks, you know, I'm, I'm very familiar with. I, I, I think um, everybody who was highlighted in, in NEAT, I have a relationship with. And, and um, it's it's been amazing to talk to some of these folks and, and for them to recognize, you know, even though we have very different um, lengths of time in the industry, but for them to um, feel like we're technically on the same level right? Um, to have them uh, kind of give their approval <laughs> <laughs> nice on the plans that I had for rebuilding uh, Castle and Key. One, one conversation, it was a brief conversation, but I'll, I'll never forget it. I was on the stage and at the Kentucky theater for, or is it the, I think it was the Kentucky theater. No, not the, it's, it's the arts uh, center in downtown Louisville. So there's a big bourbon convention there every year called the bourbon classic. And uh, that was at the point where they were still doing the master distillers panel, which I, I think they have stopped doing since then. Um, but I was the only female on the stage. And I, I think I was significantly younger than anyone else on the stage at that point either. And I was sitting between Charlie Downs, who was master distiller at the, um, shoot. It was a small, oh, Evan Williams, Evan Williams, um, their, their little um, craft distillery downtown. He was master distiller there at the time. And then Eddie Russell, of course, everybody knows who Eddie Russell is. He's <laughs> the son of Jimmy Russell of Wild Turkey. If I'm right. sitting between those two guys and, you know, they're, they're um, hey, great to see you, um, nice to meet you. And Eddie and I are sitting there and he's like, you know, Marianne, my dad was really shocked when um, when you decided to leave Brown Foreman, but he also knew that what you're going to do at Castle and Key is what every true master distiller really wants to do. And I was like, "Wow, that's amazing." Your uh, <laughs> reputation preceded you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it was just you know to to feel that connection. I mean, he didn't say it to me directly. Of course he was just kind of confiding in his son and, and Eddie was generous enough to share that with me. But, um, for him to say, to say any true master distillers is the kind of thing that they want to do and, and to kind of express that, um, I don't know what, even the right word is. It was, it was kind of like a very heartwarming and almost speechless moment. Like, wow, Jimmy Russell is, is a legend in, in Kentucky bourbon. He's been doing it longer than, than anybody else. And, and for him to kind of um, use true master distiller and um, a project that I'm working on in the same sentence, <laughs> even if it's not to say that, that I am, or maybe that I, I can become one is um, just really, um, it was really special. Yeah, I mean that's that's a, a hell of an accolade to get. I mean, I think that might top any of the lists that you've been on. I mean, that's right. that's a hell of an endorsement that to have there. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it sounds like when you left Brown and Foreman, you went from learning to engaging and doing, and and that's kind of where you've really been thriving lately. 
Um, <laughs> and it sounds like you're having a blast doing it. <laughs> I am. It's it's an incredible industry. It's hard not to have fun. <laughs> so I, I've I think I've stolen about an hour of your time, um, which I greatly appreciate. And once the the COVID craziness clears up and stuff, if you plan on coming out to uh, to Jersey, I'll I'll meet up with you and we can you can explain the the finer points of of some of the bourbons we try. But in, uh, I I I hope that we do make it out there actually because Kevin um, his oldest sister and her family are there in West Orange. So I will definitely let you know when when we make it up to Jersey next. Got it. So um, is there anything that you would like to plug at the moment? Well, I'm getting ready, hopefully, to make an announcement in the next couple months. I've, I've got this this hair harebrained scheme that I've come up with to try and um, crowdfund some money to get this mobile laboratory uh, constructed before the end of the year. So I, I really want to make this announcement before Bourbon Heritage Month passes. I, I'm hoping to, you know... Um, appeal to all the folks that unfortunately won't be able to make their annual pilgrimage to Kentucky this year because of the state of the world. Maybe they've got a couple extra dollars to spend and they want to invest it in building their palate and making a, a, a lowly <laughs> um, master distiller's dream come true <laughs> and, in building this mobile laboratory. I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of on the frontier of, of um, a new conversation about um, bourbon and, and spirits, and I would love to bring some folks along with me on that journey. It just, you know, you gotta take a little bit of money and <laughs> <laughs> and help me out. Um, but yeah, I would love for people just to, to keep their eyes and ears open for for a special announcement that that'll be coming um, before the end of September. I'll be sure to throw your Twitter and and any other uh, social media resources up on the page when I when this gets posted and people hopefully will follow you and, and definitely back that. That sounds like something pretty, uh, as you said, cutting edge. Thank you. Yeah. If, if folks are, are feel inclined, um, on my Instagram page at Marianne BMD bourbon master distiller, if you follow my, um, the link in the bio, it, it actually has an option where you can subscribe. You just put in your email address and, and whoever signs up there will be the first to hear about, um, this announcement, <laughs> uh, before it actually goes like public, public. I look forward to look for that announcement. Again, Marianne, thank you very much for your time. It was definitely an educational and enlightening uh, conversation on my end. Thank you, Michael. I've so enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show by our Patreon. Send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.